This is The Crane, an Africa-China podcast. Do the break, do the break. Today, we will be talking about a little bit of geopolitics, international relations, and we are super excited to have with us a professor from the University of Johannesburg who has a lot of experience in this field, has had a lot of focus on this in the last couple of decades. So we're hoping to have a fruitful conversation. Uh, one housekeeping is that unfortunately my co-host Amadeus Musumali could not join us today, but uh, he helped to with the preparations of everything and the technological support. But today I'll be going solo talking to Professor David Monyai, who is an associate professor of political science and international relations at the University of Johannesburg, and he's also the co-director of the UJ Confucius Institute and the Center for Africa-China Studies. Welcome, David. Thank you for joining us. Hi, how are you doing? It's a pleasure being here. Thank you. Um, you know, I've been trying to get a hold of you uh, for a while because I know you're a busy guy, so I'm hoping we can chat for the next 30 minutes about some of the pressing issues uh, around some of the regional shifts we've been seeing as it relates uh, to China-Africa, but of course, we are interested as Africans, what are the implications for the African continent? But before we do, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the work you're involved in, particularly in the Center for Africa-China Studies. Oh, indeed. I think we are dealing with um, studies. I think what we have seen in the past uh, two decades has been an increasing relation between the African continent and China. And from university perspective, uh, there was the establishment of the Confucius uh, Institute first. Um, however, in our own thinking was that uh, we go beyond the cultural exchange and language and focus much more in a deeper research issues uh, to expand uh, the benefits uh, for the university, for the country and the continent. Um, we've seen huge volumes of uh, trade. Um, and the relation between the continent and China has always been very elitist in terms of high political um, uh, elites interacting. Um, and during the struggle and even now, it is a very high level. So our thinking was that how best can we ensure that the people-to-people -people dimension um, is taken care of? and with much more knowledge. Um, and the second and third factor was that our knowledge about China has always been mediated by non-Africans and non-Chinese. Mm -hmm. So in, 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 in other words, is that our relationship with China uh, is uh, in a way um, a, a question of uh, relying on the Western world to um, tell us what China is. Uh, and the Chinese are also constantly um, told what Africa is uh, by Westerners. So uh, we thought, I think, the best way is for us to cut this mediated conversations. Um, we directly speak to, to the Chinese at all levels um, and do much more research uh, and ensure that... Um, we benefit as, uh, as Africans as well uh, uh, from a knowledge perspective and, and, and going much more deeper in our thinking 
um, uh, beyond the African continent. We're seriously looking into the African diaspora, for instance. How do we expand? Because we see this relationship um, uh, between the African continent uh, and China um, emanating from your 1955 Bangdan Conference, for instance, where Asians and Africans met. And the core issues that we discussed then, 1955, still remain uh, a huge challenge. Inequality at a global level, the democratization of institutions of global governance, uh, cultural imperialism, um, a lack of uh, technology transfers, um, and wars, imperial, imperialistic wars. And it's like we are reliving 1950s and 60s. Um, we see similar issues in, in terms of our generation. How best do we pull our knowledge um, and, and, and interact with the Chinese for the benefit of the continent and Africans wherever they are? Speaking of interacting with the Chinese, then, uh, there's two questions I have that I w- want to ask together since you mentioned how do we better interact with the Chinese on our own terms. Is One is... How do you think China's with yours based in South Africa? Maybe you can also give generalities about the continent, but around this question of people-to-people engagement and more exchange and deeper exchanges at the people level, not necessarily the higher political echelons, um, how do you think the South Africa and Africans view China, whether it's, you know, in the kind of discourse and um, the debates that are happening in the kind of intellectual spaces and the media spaces or in the general population, where would you say our consciousness is on the African continent or specifically in South Africa around China? Um, I think the view here varies. Um, The continent, I think, as you can appreciate, with 1.3 billion people, they tend to differ uh, in terms of views. Uh, these are shifting views. Uh, so it's really hard to have um, common views. However, unlike in the Western world, where the anti-China is gaining momentum, particularly in the US, Australia, and the Europe, um, that there is this anti-China based on the rise of China and, and, and the fear of China's uh, development, which in my view is much more um, crisis of capitalism, competition. Um, Africans don't look at it in, in the same way because our level of development with the Western world, even though we are so deeply steeped into your Western world in terms of our culture, language, knowledge, everything else. But we tend to see um, China uh, providing a number of opportunities, um, um, the advantages and in certain areas, disadvantages. Um, I think people see Chinese much more coming in um, 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 gaining the knowledge about what China is doing in Africa from what I've already stated um, from the Western media, uh, hegemonic Western media, that bombard our people with uh, views. Um, but even though they're doing that, they're not winning over the people because uh, people see opportunities in terms of the AU and our governments. Uh, I think the issue is not about 
whether Chinese are exploiting Africa or not for most Africans, I think the bigger question is what exactly can we do as Africans in terms of one, the continent speaking with one voice. Two, how do we improve our systems, um, legal system, uh, regulatory framework to take advantage of business opportunities in terms of Chinese investments? Because since year 2000, with China's Africa policy, what we have noticed is that the Western world had abandoned the African continent completely. Um, they come in, suck materials, and they leave. Um, it was dubbed a uh, hopeless continent. And as you know, by the economist, um, and the Chinese investments has started threatening the Western world. And they're also now coming back. So what we're having, even though it's a disadvantage at times, it's also an opportunity for the continent. The attractiveness of Africa is at its uh, highest level at the moment. Um, Americans are coming in, and Westerners are coming in, uh, even though they come with an anti-China, um, uh, treating the continent as their own backyard. Um, we need to push uh, China and now Russia uh, out of the African continent. Um, the African and African elites in particular are of the view that we should not entertain uh, the Western world in terms of their agenda. What we need, though, is uh, create an environment we can take advantage of the Chinese, also uh, have Westerners coming in to invest, um, and therefore we need to have good negotiators, uh, good trade deals, uh, good infrastructure development that benefits the continent. Um, we need to assert ourselves. We are the future market uh, with 1.3 billion, and not just 1.3 billion people, unlike India and China. We are the youngest continent in the world. So when you talk about um, technology, you talk about uh, the future of agriculture, the African continent is going to be the key in, in global uh, capitalism um, as they come uh, for the advantage that the continent provides. Um, the minerals uh, for these technologies, uh, whether lithium uh, or any other, you just go to DRC, that's where you find all those things. And in my own country, South Africa and others. Um, that's where uh, the future lies. It lies in Africans, the people themselves. Um, and how do we take advantage of that? So Chinese are perceived as... Um, we can work with them. We need to uh, uh, be quite smart in terms of how we structure these deals to, to give us an advantage uh, instead of following the debates that comes about um, that trap, um, a number of issues, which in a way, in our view, is to kick the Chinese out and uh, open uh, the usual traditional Western allies uh, to do the businesses as, as usual. That's the game in, on the African continent at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so in relation to part two of my question of how we engage China and how we learn from China, which is a lot of the work we're involved in, um, is you were recently at the Lanting Forum, which 
for those who don't know, it was established by the Chinese Foreign Ministry in 2010, and it's basically a communication platform for governments, enterprises, academics, media people, you know, and it's it's of public interest basically to for China's foreign policy. So what were some of the themes? I, I, I saw it was about um, modernization was one of the core aspects, but what were some of the themes and how does it relate to Africa, do you think? Like, what can we learn from a space like that and what was being discussed, the debates? Um, I think uh, the forum provided um, a very clear uh, status of global politics, uh, an assessment of what's happening globally, uh, that uh, what we see without being pronounced or openly is that an emerging Cold War 2.0 of some sort uh, is on the rise. Um, this comes with the trade wars that we've seen going since uh, Trump. Uh, we also have seen the United States uh, moving its um, uh, arms and um, military hardware from more Middle East, um, run, running down and getting out of this uh, war on terror, much more on war on, on China, um, into South China Sea. Um, we see the current uh, Ukraine uh, crisis and the role of NATO, so-called global NATO, which has had a negative impact on the African continent, particularly with 2011 Libya bombardment and assassination of Muammar Gaddafi. That has poured in lots of weapons into the entire Sahara region, um, uncontrollable weapons. Uh, we see conflict across uh, North Africa with Sudan at the moment. Um, so I think the, the more importantly, I think, uh, the forum also provided China with an opportunity to showcase what they have achieved uh, since the opening up in 1978. Uh, from an African perspective, I think uh, what was clear to really look at and learn is how the Chinese have developed so fast. What exactly did they do? Uh, what is it that we can learn? Also, what is it that we can unlearn uh, in terms of environment, um, and all other uh, lessons coming from their uh, rapid um, modernization. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a huge lesson for Africans. Um, it, it gave us that opportunity and, and, and how to work with the Chinese um, within global multilateralism for reforms that we are looking for as Africans. Because as it stands, the entire post-1945 world order, Africans have no stake in it, um, no representation. Uh, look at Africans in Africa, uh, in Latin America. In America itself, have no say in most of these global institutions of governance, whether it's IMF, World Bank, um, United Nations Security Council. So I think the continent is demanding uh, representation and democratization of these institutions. Um, and to pursue that, I think uh, forums uh, like the one I attended are quite critical to um, work and get support of the Chinese since they have representation uh, in some of these uh, institutions. There are areas uh, where uh, Chinese interests and African interests converge I think our argument is that let's maximize areas 
where our interests converge and manage areas where our interests diverge. And there are areas where our interests do indeed diverge uh, with the Chinese um, as much as the Western world and other big powers. So it is important to attend these meetings, understand uh, more importantly, uh, research and assist those in government to uh, have clear policies uh, and negotiate with knowledge and not just these gatherings where people just talk for the sake of talking. And, you know, as you already have mentioned in, in passing, there seems to be some kind of, I hesitate to say maybe a qualitative shift, but there is some kind of shift happening in the international landscape, in the geopolitical landscape that has largely been facilitated um, by China's, you know, rapid modernization. The, you know, we've spoken about in our podcast about the role of um, infrastructural development that has happened on the African continent funded by China. Um, the different processes that even when it comes to the question on, you know, debt trap, which I believe the real debt trap is the historical neoliberalization of African economies following, as you said, 1945, following the establishment of the IMF itself and the World Bank. And so my next question is, Given the geopolitical shifts that are happening, there seems to be a mood, a little bit of a mood for non-alignment um, that you've already hinted at. They, as you, you mentioned, Bandung, 1955. There seems to be a, a little bit of a crack in the what the U.S. calls the international rules-based order, a.k.a. the hegemonic U.S.-led um, capitalist imperialist order. And so new regional vehicles and locomotives from the global south have been arising, such as you know, BRICS in the last few decades. We see in Latin America, they have quite strong regional projects, CELAC, et cetera. And, um, you know, BRICS now represents, I think it's 40% of the world's population and a quarter or more than a quarter of the GDP. And we're seeing interest from um, Egypt, Algeria, Argentina, Mexico. Um, people are queuing to join um, BRICS. So I was hoping maybe you could speak to what do you see do you see potential in these new kind of regional um alliances and regional processes and and bodies that represent international aspirations um and maybe you can tell us a little bit about BRICS itself I know you've done a lot of work on it but what really BRICS is and what is on the agenda for there will be a meeting in South Africa in August because I think for most people in Africa and South Africa in particular the main headline you're hearing is, will South Africa arrest Putin if he comes to the BRICS meeting? But we're not necessarily understanding what's the what's actually at stake in terms of BRICS and these new regionalisms that are emerging. Perhaps let me let me start with um, in my presentation at the forum that you we we've been speaking about. My opening line was um, the system that we have at the moment of post nineteen forty five. It is your typical situation in which the old is dying and the new is not yet born, um, Gramsci. So I think we need Antonio Gramsci's position is quite critical to explain what's happening, that the post-1945 world order, US-led, Western world-led, um, no doubt is dying. You see the decline of... Um, legitimacy of the system and support, but it's not yet dead, dead, dead and buried. Um, and the power of the US dollar, uh, the, the war machinery 
um, and the, the ability to really uh, bomb countries as, 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 as it has happened in, in Syria, in Libya, in Afghanistan. I think we see a number of destabilization. The ability of the empire to disrupt is still a, one of the greatest threats we face. However, having said that, there are indeed exciting new realization and awakening of quite a number of countries and regions. Uh, for me, at, the, at this moment, I'm looking into the Gulf states. Um, yes, the Western world will say, oh, wow, it's, it's a bunch of authoritarian regimes. Yes, but there has seemed to be an awakening which we've never seen before in that part of the world. The African continent has always been awakened since 1963 with the formation of the OAU. Latin America to some extent, but at the moment there's much more strength coming from Latin America. So what are signals that shows us that the system of led by the U.S. is in, in crisis? It's lack of legitimacy, lack of trust um, with the Ukraine crisis. This endless sanctions that the U.S. poses on countries, I think has reached its ultimate um, stage and it cannot go any further. Um, the weakness of sanctions. Um, the abuse of... Yet they announced they're going to add more sanctions at the G7, right? <laughs> not are not, and they're aware of it. Um, as a matter of fact, it's backfiring. Um, we also have seen yet another abuse of what we call the global uh, public goods. Um, your uh, SWIFT system uh, with the, um, um, the buying of... Um, uh, Debts in the United States. I mean, uh, with the war in Ukraine, already they have frozen 300 billion of of, of Russian uh, money. Um, all other players are watching, and no one is thinking of investing in a in a system where you know your resources can be frozen any moment. You can be sanctioned, um, and therefore the trust in the system itself. It's, it's, it's waning. And with that, the dollar itself is in a serious crisis. It's not yet that. It's still huge uh, usage of the dollar. But the knocks, I think, is starting to receive knocks in so many areas. I think one of the major knocks that the dollar has received is to do with uh, your petrol dollar. With the Saudis agreeing with them, the Chinese to buy a petrol, a diesel in, in yuan, and we see it similarly with Iran uh, on oil, um, and quite a number of countries that are now starting to argue that we can uh, trade using our own local currencies. So that's one element. The rise of technology, particularly the digital currency, uh, the reserve banks, including on South Africa, are studying this digital currency. So the moment the digital currents take a hold, as they are doing in China, what we see is, that, is the abandonment of the U.S. dollar. Uh, the U.S. dollars won't be there to mediate trade in any part of the world. Um, so the U.S. won't be able to constantly um, um, uh, print dollars um, uh, for wars, for their military bases, for all these uh, imperialistic agendas. So it will knock on the system in the long run. And therefore, what it has done with the rise of BRICS, and that brings South Africa, um, there's fear in the Western world. 
however, our understanding of South Africa, unlike other BRICS countries, South Africa's economy is historically more uh, intertwined with the Western world. Um, and therefore, uh, I think in recent months, there has been a move to really punish South Africa. And it's not just South Africa. It's sending a message to all other countries in Latin America, Middle East, who wants to abandon the Western US-led uh, world order into a new imaging. Um, so the attack comes in all sorts of uh, ways. We're going to not sanction per se, but it's getting there. Um, if you don't behave, we're going to cut the Goa and the trade agreement we have with you. Uh, there's this talk, I mean, we help you with lots of uh, uh, on issues of uh, HIV, AIDS, drugs. Um, we help you. We do so many things. Um, we, South Africa, U.S. trade constitutes 9% of, of, of our trade. Um, it's number four, somewhere there, four, five. Um, it's an important um, uh, trading partner. More than 600 U.S. companies are in South Africa and, you know, on the, and more in, on the continent. Therefore, U.S. remains an important uh, player uh, in our economy. So South Africa finds itself uh, not taking sides on Ukraine, uh, um, arguing for a non-aligned, uh, peace-driven. However, there's these massive attacks in the media uh, really undermining South Africa's position and its moral capital in terms of mediation, a possible mediation uh, on the issue of Ukraine. Um, so we're going to see more of that. And also the abuse of other institutions. I mean, in this case, the ICC. ICC from Norway just comes in and uh, a warrant of arrest on, on President Putin. And South Africa had made a mistake in terms of the domestication of the Rome statue, uh, we domesticate it into our own laws. Um, and by doing so, there's a certain clause within the Rome statue that South Africa did not exclude. I mean, quite a number of other countries, such as UK, excluded that, that you are not going to arrest sitting head of states. And because of that mistake, um, uh, we are about to host uh, BRICS, so it brings a lot of embarrassment for South Africa that you have invited President Putin and you are, you are, you are required to arrest him at the same time. Um, so a lot of work is being done to ensure that um, adjust the Rome statue, how it is domesticated nationally, uh, not, to, not to force South Africa to arrest a sitting head of state. So President Putin is more likely coming to BRICS summit um, however, there's going to be more and more drama around South Africa uh, from the Western world, uh, in the media and everywhere else. And with really uh, threats of sanctions and uh, if South Africa does not abandon a non-aligned uh, foreign policy. Coming to the rise of other African countries and developing world with this uh, new Cold War um, 2.0, we see non-alignment movement will take place quite soon, and Uganda is going to chair that. So there are discussions, there are talks that we need to revive, because one of the issues that BRICS remains the elitist of the developing countries' platform. 
Um, It emanates more from your uh, group of uh, 77 plus China, which died within the United Nations system. Uh, The non-alignment movement, very weak. I mean, uh, it's not that strong. Uh, So BRICS has managed to have these elite uh, developing countries um, leading, but there is a need to expand. And and the, the expansion of BRICS is also another area that is exciting with, uh, as you have mentioned, Saudi Arabia taking Iran, um, Egypt, Algeria, uh, you have Argentina, Mexico, quite a number of uh, Indonesia, Malaysia. Uh, some of these countries also wants to join BRICS. Should they join uh, and continue with the de-dollarization process, um, I think we're going to see much more uh, chaos, uh, uh, fights and tension and crisis within uh, the developed uh, world. Europe, uh, as well as the United States itself, will be unable to continue business as usual. So any predictions as to what any interesting developments we can expect from both the BRICS meeting and the the non-aligned movement meeting happening in Uganda? Um, I think what we're going to see are signals. It won't be a big bank approach. We're going to see a gradual approach in um, uh, more countries speaking out. Uh, Also, I think one of the weaknesses since the end of Cold War was the lack of coordination among the global south. I think what we are now starting seeing is much more coordinated efforts by countries uh, in the Middle East, Gulf states, Africa, Latin America, uh, Asia, your former Eastern European, uh, former Soviet empire uh, countries are really rising up and stating their position, which is uh, not in line with Washington. So I think you're going to see a gradual approach and um, we have to wait and see. No, I really think we're, we have to be observing the situation very closely and, as you've already correctly stated, understand what's really at stake within the current conjuncture. Um, so I really appreciate the things you've shared. So I guess to kind of wrap up, um, I wanted to hear from you, because you mentioned this earlier, about having to have unity and some level of, you know, even minimum agreement amongst our different um, countries. And as you also mentioned, now it's the 60-year anniversary of the establishment of the Organization of African Unity, which then shifted to being named and reformulated to be the African Union. Do you think that the African Union is able and is doing it? Are they able to lead this sovereign development project that is very much needed if we're going to tackle the basic issues on the continent? Where do do you think we are in terms of that process of, I guess, continental unity at even a minimum level? Because as we know with the African Organization of African Unity in 1963, when it emerged, it also, um, the old still wasn't, uh, the old was dying, but the new still was not yet born. We had, you know, the Casablanca group, the Brazzaville group. 
the Mon Monrovia. I was about to say, Mo- yeah, about to say yeah. Montevideo, but that's Monro- in the- <laughs> Uruguay. Um, but they still had a lot of political differences that, in many ways, undermined the project. Of course, um, what happens with coups and the killing off of leaders and um, the rise of the neoliberal era all contribute to that. But where do you think we are in terms of that kind of leadership? Um, because ultimately, we know. A lot of our governments don't necessarily represent, you know, people-centric projects per se, but we do have to use the crack that we're seeing to push our governments to move towards a more sovereign development project. The answer, a simple answer is that we're still there in terms of uh, the differences on the African continent. I think what you see as much as we are moving towards a stronger common position, African position, uh, the continent at the moment, it has a crisis of leadership. Um, that crop of leaders of 1960s uh, and 70s is no longer there. Your Julius Nyerere and your Kwame Nkrumah, Samora Michelle, um, uh, Thomas Sankara, and we have quite a number, uh, NASA. Um, at the moment, there are a handful, uh, very few, if, I mean, in certain areas, none. Uh, really outstanding leaders uh, speak uh, with confidence and unite the continent. So I think we'll get there. Uh, but I think what is more interesting is the uh, establishment of Africa institutions of governance, the AU itself, uh, infrastructure development uh, uh, area, at, at the legal level, I think the um, injustice, uh, human rights issues. Um, in my view, we have to have Africans governing themselves and taking a lead on issues um, concerning good governance. It's very important. But what is happening is that to counter Russia and China, we see the Western world uh, doing what they do best. They're no longer doing openly assassinating African leaders as they used to do with uh, Patrice Lumumba and, and others were openly killed. Um, and they come in the name of democracy. Um, so you have these leaders that come in, they change like nepis. I mean, um, within five years, I mean, they change leaders. So there's no policy continuity you get excited with one leader, but within five years or so, that leader is out. Another one comes with the pro-West uh, in all other areas. They also have openly, as you have followed the in the Congress in the U.S., a uh, huge substantial amount of money has been put into counter Russia and China in our own media. So they're pouring out sources views where Africans differ in terms of who uh, to support. So some of us are saying we're not looking for East or West. We need to strengthen a Pan-African unity. We need to find areas where we agree as Africans. Um, And we don't have to hear from outsiders what is good for us. Uh, As the case now, we need to ensure that uh, our relationship with China, if there are issues we raise, Um, We negotiate, we understand fully. Um, We also educate our people in technology and other areas. We can't have Chinese building our bridges forever. 
um, at some point we will be able to build our bridges and infrastructure on our own. So uh, it takes efforts to do that. And I think my parting shot will be uh, the only greatest achievement that the AU has achieved since its formation in 1963 has been this signed uh, And you can see the increase in trade among Africans from 15%. We're now in the range of 22-25%. I think we need to go into the 50-60s, uh, like other regions. Um, connectivity on the African continent, closing in the bottlenecks in terms of infrastructure and the movement of people um, on the African continent. There is so much that we can do so that we become less dependent on the outside world. Thank you so much. I mean especially what you're saying. I've been now in China for a couple of months and you truly seeing is believing because, you know, reading up on this for many years now, talking about infrastructure, but when you're sitting on a high-speed railway going, you know, what should be a 12-hour trip between Beijing and Shanghai, you're going in 4.3, a thousand people are on that uh, train. The movement of people, that the, the, the economic development that all of that has facilitated is the part I think that we should be thinking about in Africa, right? Because, yeah, we don't want to, we, we want to train our engineers to build those bridges and to do all, all of that work. But there are clear lessons that can be learned from the China development model. And it's good to have people like you who are working on making sure that we understand that and, and develop our political consciousness, particularly, as you said, we have a crisis of leadership. We have a crisis of the kind of political vision of where the continent needs to go and how we're going to do it together. So thank you. And I appreciate your words from the uh, Marxist uh, intellectual Antonio Gramsci, because we are in this, I never get the word right, interregnum, I think. That was oh, the interregnum. But hopefully what is not yet born is being birthed nonetheless. And it will be a long process, but um, um, I, I can see that there's a lot of potential. And if we have the right people doing it, uh, we're going to get there. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been The Crane and Africa China podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, um, through the Dongsheng Collective. Dongsheng is the group of international researchers who are trying to share more information about what is China, what happens in China, in order for us not only to draw lessons, but so we can make informed decisions, as uh, David already spoke about. So on that note, we will see you in the next or hear you in the next time we are on the podcast. Thank you so much, David, and see you all later.